Welcome to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with my people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. This is the kickoff to season two of Studs. And if I may be so bold, I gotta ask you for a favor. If you like Studs, if you care about what we're trying to do here, please share Studs with three people, a family member, a buddy, and if you're lucky enough to have work these days, a colleague. Now, if you're new to Studs, I urge you to listen to the trailer to season one, which offers a deeper dive into my mission, and it helps contextualize these conversations. And then join me for season two, as I dig into the working lives of a nurse, a chef, a therapist, a strip club DJ, and many more. Trust me, season two is amazing. We laugh, we cry, we learn, we explore and honor working. I hope you enjoy the ride. Now we're launching season two with my conversation with Jeffrey Patrick Guzak, a.k.a. The Goose. The Goose has been a guiding force in my life for over three decades. Ever since he was my teacher, he's been my teacher. But he left teaching to become an attorney. And while this granted The Goose the freedom he pined for, it presented him with a whole host of challenges, some of which he discusses here. He talks about what it feels like to be thrown in the middle of a complicated divorce, and he shares stories, triumphant and tragic, of criminal defense. Goose is a storyteller among storytellers, so it was only appropriate to kick off season two with the dude who not only animated me about history and teaching, but also helped me to find the voice I'm trying to pursue on this here podcast. So please, enjoy my deep dive into the working life of Hipcat, the Goose, attorney at paw. Meow. Jeffrey Patrick Guzak, you are my high school teacher and detention hall supervisor. You are my college chum pursuing your legal studies while I was an undergraduate. You were the officiant at my wedding, and all along you've been a confident and, dare I say, a role model. So it is, and I say this without exaggeration, an honor to have you on. Welcome to Studs. Thank you for being here. Now, before we dive too far in, and I'll tell you, in my own mind, I've devised an answer to this. I I can hardly wait to see if my answer jives with yours, I got to ask, there were push factors, there were pull factors. What drove you out of teaching and into law? Well, before I answer your question, Dan, if I can say something back to your audience, the, the feeling's mutual. This is going to be a, a real hot love fest. <laughs> Dan Lazar, the first time I saw him with uh, shoulder-length hair and multiple earrings with a tie-dye shirt on and benching 240 pounds when he weighed about 150. I knew there was something very dynamic about this young man. And he's uh, not in class, but he's in detention hall. <laughs> I had to find out more. 
And uh, boy, I did, because Dan always had the longest attention. So once I dismissed all the other students, we got to talking and talking. Then we actually became roommates later on. And uh, uh, the topic of this is work. And it was very apparent to me that Dan had far superseded anything I ever did in teaching in terms of passion and energy and what he put into it. And I used to think I was pretty good. But when Dan says role model, uh, let me tell you, you've inspired me way more. Uh, with all the things you do. So that's what I got to say first. Now I can answer your questions. All right. Thank you. You were a great teacher to continue the love fest. You were the best, Goose. And it's hard to see the best in the public service sector leave for something else. So what drove you out of teaching and into law? In, in a word, administrators. <laughs> and uh, you and I have talked about this. You know a lot of what I went through in terms of frustrations. To me, there were three components to teaching. And one was my subject matter, which was history and social studies, which you've taken up and run with as well. And again, surpassed me. Um, the second was the kids uh, and doing something noble and pure in, in trying to impart the knowledge and not just on history, but I've also on life. And then the third thing was dealing with parents. I love dealing with the parents. I mean, I loved every aspect of, of that in teaching. There was one thing I kind of didn't anticipate as I was going through my undergrad career and trying to start my teaching career. And it was some administrators had different ideas on some things and, and that included on me. And uh, I was not a big hit with a couple of them. So that kind of gave me the nudge out the door. I will say this, I was always planning to get my law degree while I was teaching. So my first plan was to get my master's in history. And um, I was on my way to that. And then uh, I was going to go get my law degree at night, if possible, or wherever it had to be. And then I was going to make a decision. There came a point where uh, after four years teaching, it just became clear to me, I had to go full time and, uh, and go get my law degree. So when you did that, and you went to law school, what had you hoped your legal career would look like? Like, what was the dream, Goose? An excellent question. And I had a two-pronged dream. I, first of all, wanted uh, independence, uh, the way I worked and what I did. And I wanted full autonomy. To be my own boss was something that, uh, especially after what had been an extremely frustrating four years uh, in education, I just want to be my own boss. So I knew that a law degree would give me that autonomy. I never went to law school with the idea I was going to go work for somebody else. The second part of the dream was I had an idea I was going to get into politics. Hmm. And uh, unfortunately, that part of the dream has gone by and I don't really see it coming back. I, you know, I now have settled into marriage, uh, got two awesome kids and a beautiful wife. Don't see that one coming back, but certainly I got the autonomy. It's either a perfect time for you to check out of politics or frankly, a perfect time for fellas like you to get into politics, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. So you didn't really then have dreams to be like a hot shot ACLU attorney defending the indigent or necessarily fighting for justice for those who have been traditionally deprived of justice. Is that, in fact, the case? It was more pragmatic than that? Yeah, that's fair. I, I didn't go into law because I saw so many things wrong with the world. I went into law, uh, first and foremost, for the reasons I said, that tertiary concern would always be there. 
to do something good for humanity. I mean, that's the profession you're in and that's the profession I was in is like all the energy you expend in teaching comes back to you full force with the energy you get back from the kids. If, if you got a good dynamic going and I did, I certainly don't get that joy on a day-to-day basis in my current career, but there are definitely moments when I do get that joy. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe some of the reason you don't get that same joy is perhaps the specific types of law that you find yourself working in. It seems like a lot of your work is in real estate, divorce, criminal defense, and the real estate thing, I imagine you turn it over real fast, you you make some Benjamins, uh, and it, it sustains you. And then the divorce and the criminal defense stuff, it's probably really interesting sometimes. So I really want to focus on divorce law, criminal defense law. But first, why divorce? Why criminal defense? Why is this the meat and potatoes of your practice? In law school, family law believe it or not, is actually grounded in a lot of common sense. It's not super hard technically to get the, the basics of it down. Now, there's, there's certain concepts in family law, like the best interest of the child standard, which is what the courts try to always keep focus on in a divorce situation. Now, what does best interest of the child mean? Well, certainly there's a whole room, a bunch of room for argument on what that means. And I, I like that. Some of the other areas of law... Uh, we're highly technical, things like contracts and some of the drier topics, civil procedure didn't get me going. I, I, didn't, I didn't enjoy bankruptcy. So I found family law uh, very common sense. You could figure it out rather quickly. It's just how, how passionate are you and, and you know how, how do you uh, get the result that's best for your client and also you know, that serves justice. That would be the divorce setting. The criminal justice comes more from maybe my uh, youthful rebellion days. And, and, you know, I don't do super high stake criminal defense. I have never taken a murder case. I've never taken a rape case. I made that decision long ago that I, I probably would not do that unless it's for an absolute loved one, you know, if it's cool with you, I'd kind of like to get into both of those in turn. Maybe we'll start with divorce. They're often messy. They're almost always stressful. What's the biggest challenge of supporting clients through a divorce? So it's a fantastic question. And a lot of people say, you know, you get burned out real fast in divorce because you, you just see people at their worst. You see kids caught in between. And in fact, just about three days ago, one of my divorce clients said, dude, I don't know how you do this every day. I value my marriage and I try to, it's almost like the pitfalls I see that others have fallen into. Uh, I try to use it to inform me on what to avoid. Uh, you know, that said, you know, how many people have come to me that have said, you know, you know, I'm sleeping down in the basement, uh, haven't had sexual relations in, you know, two years and, uh, you know, we just don't really talk anymore. I say, well, so what's the problem? Um, because most married couples are in that kind of place. Now, a lot of them don't go into the divorce realm, but I, I do try to use it to inform me to try to stay healthy in my own life. And I'm trying to help. I'm trying to help families. I think I'm a, usually a pretty jovial spirit that can bring some amicability into a an otherwise hostile environment. How do you do that? 
Can you please talk about that? You have a couple that has created a hostile environment. Yep. And you, by dint of personality, you breathe some amicability into the divorce proceedings. Is it sheer dint of personality? How do you do it? So the first thing I always try to lean on are the kids, not from a leverage standpoint, far from it. Uh, the, the kids in terms of, I always say eyes on the prize, eyes on the prize. And that's the kids. When you are, are so done with somebody laterally, an adult, when you're so fed up with them, when you're so maybe hate filled, if you can keep the, the perspective, it's almost like a triangle in my mind as I think about it, instead of this lateral tug of war where both sides are pulling on the rope as hard as they can and it's hopelessly knotted, there's this third area you can go to, you know, mother, father, and then this third area, the kids, that can take some of that tension off if both parties can apply their energies that way. So that's, that's the first thing I try to do. Uh, sometimes there aren't kids involved or the kids are grown and it's more just about property and debts and things like that. And there, there can still be hatred. I try to get the parties together. I've had my greatest successes, I believe, in sitting down in a room with both parties and the other attorney and hashing things out or going back in chambers. It's called a pretrial. You go back with the judge and you spill it out in front of the judge without rules of evidence. You know, you can even get a little fiery. You don't have to watch your language so much, but we get things done back there that helps save the clients time and money. And, you know, basically the judge gives a, a hint of how they would rule if there's a hearing. So we try to do it that way. I'm a big fan of it. There's some, there's some attorneys that aren't, they don't want the clients ever to talk to the other uh, party. I don't, I don't see that as uh, productive at all. I, I do urge my client to continue talking to the other side amicably if possible. Have you engaged with other attorneys, opposing attorneys who they don't want the clients to talk, perhaps they have their own vested interest in that. And have you been able to persuade them that it's best for the couple and best for the children? I'd say every time, you know, there comes to a point where the only tiebreakers, instead of having hearing after hearing on a case and finally a trial, there comes a time when you've got to get everyone sitting down together and there will be shots fired across the ballot by both parties as attorneys, as myself as an attorney, I try to let that, you know, kind of breathe. I want them to, you know, take their shots, but then let's kind of move on to what would be practical and, and amicable in resolving these matters. So in the realm of divorce law, you have this, I don't know, I imagine it to be a really rather intensely strange problem where you find yourself very intimately involved in someone's life. Like on that first consultation, you're hearing about perhaps their sex life. You're hearing about mostly on that first consultation. It's a lack of sex life almost right. every time. <laughs> right. So first of all, like um, how comfortable are you with becoming so personal with people so quickly? And then with that in mind, how do you draw lines between the professional and becoming like the airsets therapist for some of your clients? Right. Obviously, I'm learning the most, the most personal details of somebody's life. I do try to get into a nine to five schedule, although often 
you know, I'll say are you available tonight at eight o'clock. It's the only time I have, and they will be. I I bill them for uh, for phone calls. I bill them for emails. That is one way to keep them from just constantly talking about problems or rehashing issues and and frustrations that can't really be dealt with in the court anyway. So so building as harsh as it may sound, uh, or as pragmatic as it may sound, is you know kind of tends to dissuade somebody from calling me nonstop. Can I can I ask you sort of a follow up to that? Yeah, being a person of integrity, you tell them from the outset that you know, you're not performing a public service and that your time is worth money and that you're going to bill them. Have you had scenarios where someone is belaboring the story of their divorce, trying to fill you in in every detail, really because they need someone to talk to and you have to intercede and say, listen, I, I feel you. This sounds really rough, but let us not forget you're, you're being billed by, by the minute here. I, I kind of take care of that in my initial consultation. First of all, my initial consultation is free. So I, I think some attorneys, you know, aim for that first hour. I've had consultations take three hours, you know, first initial consultations. I let them get it all out. I do give them that cautionary tale. You know, once we, if they're going with me, it's all spelled out in my retainer agreement that I bill for everything, you know, so you may only see me in court for an hour and then you get a bill for a couple grand because all the phone calls, all the letter writing, all the research, the stuff they don't see me do, it adds up. So th- they realize that my own little uh, psychological safeguard on this stuff is a great attorney friend of mine. His name's Gary Newland. Early on, one of my first cases, he said, look, you didn't make their life. You're just trying to help. You're trying to help, but you also can't have yourself, uh, you know, go into the poor box or, or you know, going to depression, trying to help. So you do have to kind of put up a wall psychologically and emotionally. Have you ever had a client who comes to you saying, I want to file suit against my spouse, and then they tell you why, and you learn about this marriage, and you learn about this couple, and you're like, don't do it, man. You're messing up. Like, you don't want a divorce. You want marital therapy. Let me save you some money. I've said to clients before, you know, the only one who wins a divorce is uh, someone that dis- dismisses the case. I- I've said that sometimes. Uh, that's not necessarily true. Or divorce uh, can be a good thing um, for both parties or even the kids. It can be. But I kind of have that kind of reluctance on it. I like to see people stay together. I guess uh, I got a romantic spot in my heart and maybe I shouldn't be a family law attorney. But I remember uh, specifically a guy came to my office seeking divorce. Why, why, why? Well, we haven't had sex in, you know, two years. And okay, I understand. You know, there's been a distance between us. Well, why haven't you had sex in two years? Well, it turned out his wife had been raped and um, they had to get through that whole healing process. There's reasons and reasons and reasons. And in fact, the, the family law courts have kind of done away with reasons. They're like, if you want a divorce, you just come here and you say irreconcilable differences have led to the irretrievable breakdown of the marriage. And they don't want to hear about fault and they don't want to hear about adultery or alcoholism or drug abuse or, or even spousal abuse. It's like, just here, come here, we'll get you divorced. Well, people have a much longer story to tell than that. And in that person's case, we went back and forth on everything, and I, I finally said, are you sure you don't want to give this another shot? And 
He said, that's exactly what we're going to do. So that was a good one. I, I never heard from again, him again. I don't know if he ever got divorced, but sometimes no news is good news. And I assume, well, I hope that uh, they worked out some of those heavy burdens they were carrying and uh, were able to stay together. So could I ask you about the other side of that? Uh, well, first of all, con- congratulations. That sounds like a real feat. And I have this romantic image in my mind that they are together and happy. And every once in a while, your name comes up <laughs> and they smile when they think about you the way so many of us do. But with that said, the other side of it, have you ever had a divorce client who you learned was so disrespectful or violent or awful or just otherwise nefarious that you had a hard time advocating for them in a full throttled way in a good conscience. Many times, many times. Um, and I can't stand some of these people. I'll say that right now. I can't stand some of them and I can't stand them to this day and I don't hear from them again, but it's an interesting dichotomy and it is a strain on my psyche and it might, you know, an outsider might say, uh, I'm being a not very good attorney uh, feeling this way. There are some attorneys that can compartmentalize better than I. Me, I, I try to keep my profession still attached to my soul. You know, here, here's a little inside scoop. I'm, I'm a religious guy and I still pray, you know, I still pray. And on top of that, I lost my mom suddenly back in 2007 and she was about the purest soul I ever knew. Her grave is right across the street from my office, so I go see her regularly. And when I'm facing a, a trial or a hearing, I still say hey to her, and then I say, hey, see what you can do. Talk to the guy upstairs. Uh, this cause is just. If I don't have a just cause, or like you said, I'm representing an unsavory person, I don't have that purity of thought, and often I don't ask for the help in my eloquence or in my reasoning or in my arguments to the court. I just try to do my best. Well, it can be hard. I mentioned my mom. My mother was a nurse. Her father was an alcoholic who ended up leaving the the family when she was very young. Child of divorce in 1947 um, Mm -hmm. with no help, you know, not child support, no maintenance. So she had a tough life and she also resented alcoholics. Well, when she became a nurse, one of her first, uh, like clinical cases was a guy dying of cirrhosis of the liver because of alcoholism. And she went to her instructor and said, I can't really go in that room. I, I have such a psychological, you know, built up frustration. And the nurse said, well, you got to figure that out. And my mom actually went, there's a chapel in the hospitals and she went and prayed. And then she realized, you know, everyone's got their own issues. She can't have her own baggage interfere with what she does. And then she went in and tended to the guys professionally as she could. And I know it was top notch because I know my mom. So uh, that's the way I deal with that. Hmm. I'm looking at her picture right now. Yeah. Uh, She's the best. She's the best. On the, on the saintly side, if not a saint as such, I suppose, huh? And she was my administrative assistant uh, after she retired from nursing. So yeah, miss her every day at the office. (laughs) Hey Goose. You you know that divorce attorneys get a bad rap, at least in pop culture. I've heard it said that the only people who really benefit from divorces are attorneys, although I don't think that's true. 
I've heard that divorce attorneys have a tendency to seek to belabor divorce proceedings for their own fiscal interests. I would never accuse you of doing such things. Uh, You know, I look up to you. I'm open about it. Have you seen it happen? Is there any truth to the um, disparaging rumors? Honestly, uh, when I started my law practice, which was back in uh, 1998, and I had a case around uh, 2000 where I felt it was an attorney who was deliberately screwing up everything. Um, the case involved one of my buddies I grew up with. I knew his wife. Um, I was at their wedding. In fact, they wanted to come to me to just get everything done as the attorney for both of them. And I said, you know what? The, the situation's too rife with conflict of interest. I, I really can't do that. The parties had about 90% of that marital estate all handled, including care for the young kid. And the other attorney just kept putting a wrench into it every single time. And I did accuse him of just that. Now that was 20 years ago. Since that time, yeah, I've come across some attorneys, especially with regard to something we talked about earlier. If I say, let's get us all four together in a room and try to bang this out and they don't want to, well, then, then I wonder what they're doing. Um, I can honestly say I have never, ever done something to just run up the ledger, far from it. Back to our, our attorneys, terrible people, especially when it comes to divorce. First thing a client asks me is how much is it going to cost? One of the first things they ask me. And I always tell them it's a direct function of how much you want to fight and how much you want to get along. And, and let's face it, no client walks into my office if they've got everything handled themselves. My favorite attorney joke of all time. Go. Guy jumps up in a bar, holds up his shot glass and says, here's the all attorneys. They're all assholes. Another guy jumps up and says, hey, I object to that. And the guy making the toast says, why, are you an attorney? And the other guy says, no, I'm an asshole. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jeffrey Patrick Guzek. <laughs> he'll, be, he'll be here all week. Tip your servers. It's still my favorite. So, Goose, you know I'm kind of like a big feelings type of fella. I strive to be empathic, and I know you do also. And you have clients who come to you with big feelings. They're overwhelmed. They really need help. Oftentimes, I'll bet they feel totally lost, and they're looking for you to to save them. They feel like they're falling. How do you deal with some of those, shall I call them, big feelings clients? The type of family law case I get most fired up about is uh, somebody who's a victim of adultery. And the the pulling out from under their feet, uh, their life, somebody goes and has an affair, but it's not just cheating on the spouse, you're cheating on the kids too. And so many people I've, I've had them tell me, well, you know, if I'm in an unhealthy marriage, it's the worst thing I can do for the kids. You know, I need to show them they can be free to leave, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's a justification. It's uh, it's typical. I've heard it many times. People need to be mindful that you might be just not just tearing apart your spouse who you no longer care about, but also some little ones. Um, So those get me, worked up and my clients know just how much I get worked up about that. They know it firsthand. And I, uh, 
I carry that passion through that entire litigation. Can you imagine somebody cheating on you and then you go to court and the court says, well, yeah, they cheated on you, but you're giving up uh, 60% of your house. Uh, you have to pay them child support because they're going to be the caretaker for the kids, even if the, the new paramour moves in with them. Uh, and you're going to have to help build a house with the maintenance you owe. Boy, that's way more than a slap in the face. And that's the kind of stuff that gets people real, real desperate. So pretty deep-seated passions when it comes to justice. And I find that completely unjust. And, you know, there's an adage in, in attorney speak that we need to maintain our objectivity. In other words, we're not the party. We're this third party that's trying to help the party that's in the middle of the storm. I don't buy that. Uh, in fact, I there was a family law case and my client uh, was a man and I felt, uh, I didn't feel, I know that charges were drummed up police were summoned to his house all in an attempt just to get him out of the house. So mom would have an upper hand keeping the house. And then, but what was way worse, she kept him away from the kids on an order of protection and it was nonsense. And I was in the hall just outside the courtroom talking to her attorney. And I do believe that attorney put her up to it. So I began screaming and yelling and uh, a few legalese words that are four letter words came out of my mouth. And her attorney said, Jeff, you're losing your objectivity. And I said, objectivity sucks. And you're damn right. I'm going to have no objectivity in this case, none whatsoever, because objectivity is a crock of shit. And uh, you know what? It helps get the case resolved. Huh. You have to show passion like that. And that wasn't putting on a show. I was, uh, you know, very personally indignant uh, to what they had pulled. It was nonsense. Then he went back in chambers with that judge and, and, again, used every four-letter word in my vocabulary to describe what had been done to my guy. And the judge heard it. So eventually, but it took far too long. We got the guy back with his kids. It was ridiculous. Can I ask you how impassioned you allow yourself to be when it comes to the work that's done in the court of law? Because you are a beautifully passionate person how much is that muted on a you know on a day-to-day -day basis can you can you really let your colors shine in the court of law outside in the hall or back in chambers there is much more formality that has to happen in a hearing or a trial that i can't let the four-letter words go not too much <laughs> i try to throw in once once or twice but you know when you look at TV shows or movies uh, featuring attorneys and, and courtroom action, you know, there aren't a ton of opportunities to explode like that. And so that's kind of the romance of the legal profession. Much of my time is spent in my office or researching or on phone calls or sometimes writing a dull letter. You know, the times to shine in the courtroom are on your cross-examination of an adverse witness or in your closing arguments. But other than that, you kind of got to stick to the evidence and you got to stick to their rules. So what percent of your work time is devoted to preparing for and carrying out divorce proceedings, give or take, on an average year? One of my aspects of my practice is, is real estate. Um, but in divorces and uh, criminal law, you know, you're probably talking about 
60% of my time is spent on those two arenas, but probably another 40 on real estate. The way that breaks down is probably about 40% of time uh, consulting with clients, not just in an office meeting, but, you know, over the phone, via email, via text, et cetera. Uh, Maybe another 20% of the time spent researching and then, you know, probably another 40% of the time in court. All right. It's nice to get out of the office. I'll bet. So with the time that you spend doing criminal defense, it can't be easy offering a defense for alleged criminals. There just seems to be a lot at stake, if nothing else, reputation, but much, much more. What's the range of criminal cases you litigate? So like from petty theft to what? Um, I once represented a guy on retail theft. Uh, He had walked out of a, a large shopping mall with a $15 pair of donkey balls that uh, they were fake, of course, uh, to, to attach to his trailer hitch on his car. Um, one of my favorite cases, one of my favorite cases. Was it a mistake? Did you try to convince the court that he thought they were his balls? <laughs> I did. I said, you know, it's hard to tell where one's balls begin and somebody else's balls. And so the guy went away for 12 years. So, I mean, I probably didn't give the best argument. I'm just kidding. He was not facing much at all. These are fun cases. They're fun cases to put in front of a courtroom full of people. The most my people have ever faced, I I did have a guy that was facing uh, federal charges, civil conspiracy to defraud case. And with federal, it's tricky because there's minimum sentencing guidelines and they are harsh. Um, Federal is very different than state. Um, Often the feds, have uh, wiretaps and surveillance going on for months or years before they even charge a person or indict a person. And that's why they have something like a 90% conviction rate. They don't mess around. So I did have a client in that kind of a a case where depending on how large the the feds felt the whole conspiracy was, you know, he could have been going away for 20 years, um, was able to get that resolved. Uh, he did not go away at all, though he did have to take a conviction and he, he got his probation. Um, and another case, it was actually a f- fifth time DUI offender. And Oy. he was involved in an accident in a rolled over vehicle. I mean, there's just not much I could do for him. And he was facing uh, something like eight years. And the best I could do, I finally did have to plea that one out and I got him two years, but you know, he did have to go away and there just was only so much I could do. What was that moment like when you, after doing your best, had to say to him, sorry, you're, you know, you're going to have to go to the Illinois penitentiary for a couple of years. Probably one thing I value more than anything is freedom. And I, I think like most human beings, we value that. So to see him go away was just terrible. Now there were other mitigating factors. He was not married. He did not have a spouse counting on him. He did not have kids. There's also another thing. At some point, you need to be removed from the things that are destroying your life. And hopefully you can get back on your feet. Now, obviously, prison's not the best place for that to happen. But after so many chances, you know, he's got the population at risk. He had to go. And he was, he was accountable about it. You know, he was not crying out and screaming and, 
or even crying. He just, he was resigned to his fate. He handled it. He served his time. He got out. Don't know how he's doing today, but obviously he had, he had some deep seated problems. Now in the conspiracy case, I was telling you about the the co-conspirator higher up the line took no deal from the prosecutor and fought it out and went away to prison. And he did have wife and kids. And my client had to watch his buddy get taken away, kicking and screaming. And that's tough. It's very tough. Hmm. You probably do a fair amount of DUI cases. I don't know if it's your bread and butter on the criminal side, but I know there are a lot of DUI cases out there. These people who drive drunk, they probably have done it before and not gotten caught. It's just that their number was up. That's fair. You have kids. You know these people are a danger to society. Yet you're an empathic, decent person who knows that people make regrettable mistakes. Do you find yourself in judgment of your DUI clients? Thankfully, I've never had to handle a DUI where my client seriously injured another person. I don't know that I would do it. Would you refuse the case? Would you say, hey, I, thanks for reaching out, but there's probably someone better for this job? I may. And I, you know, I have a nice list of guys that are more adept than I at handling such cases. But to answer your question, I go back to, you know, two things. One is what Gary Newland said, uh, you know, you're, you didn't make their life. You're just trying to help. And two, another great Jewish teacher who said, let he is, who is without sin cast the first stone. That saying really is the most informative saying when it comes to me defending people. Have I sinned in my life? Yes. Did I ever get behind the wheel when I shouldn't have? Yes. Have I ever been caught? No. That doesn't change the fact I've done it. And so many people have. And do I think they deserve a second chance? Well, when Jesus confronted the mob and was the only one to step in front of, between the mob and the adulteress, the alleged adulteress, of course, that was a huge moment in Western civilization for me and uh, or any culture that, that gives uh, the benefit of the doubt to people at perhaps a risk of the quality of society, right? So Jesus bet on the adulteress and said, you know what? She's going to reform her ways and she's going to be all good. For me, the basis of maybe liberal thought and empathy, forgiveness, this acknowledgement that we all screw up. So there must be a time where you achieved a not guilty verdict for a client who you knew was guilty. And you weren't sure you were going to be able to pull it off, but by dint of hard work or luck or other circumstance, you, you pulled it off and your client got to walk despite being guilty, despite having done harm to society. And then you walk out and this client is you know, exhilarated. They're, they're relieved. They're thrilled. They want to high five you and hug you. You saved them. What do you say, if anything, to those clients when, when they just want to celebrate with you while exiting the courthouse? So I did have a DUI and, and it was a second time DUI. Now that's, that's much higher stakes in Illinois. Uh, first time 
you're usually looking at a supervision. That's not a conviction. You're usually looking at you serve your suspension. You pay your reinstatement fee of 250 bucks. You get your license back. Second and successive DUIs become a revocation. You're no longer eligible for supervision. So if you're found guilty, it is a conviction. It's on your record forever. The state then takes your license and you have to beg for it back year after year after year. And nobody gets it back the first year. They say, hey, keep working on things. Come see us back in another year. And you wait and wait and wait. And you spend thousands of dollars usually to get a specialized attorney to represent you at those secretary of state hearings before you get your license back. In this case, the guy was stopped uh, and did all his field sobriety tests. And he was a very much an open book guy that lived uh, near me and he came to pay his fee and he knows my wife and he knows my kids and just made no secret that this is what happened to him. So even my 11 year old kid knew what was up. So anyway, we had his preliminary hearing to see whether there was even probable cause. Now I'm looking at his video. He was as still as a statue and following the, officer's instructions. And he did his walk and turn nine steps perfectly. And he did his one-legged stand perfectly. Do I know if he was drinking that night? I don't know. The officer said he smelled alcohol. I could trust an officer saying he smelled alcohol and the guy had watery bloodshot, glassy eyes. But when the officer says he's swaying during his test or he didn't complete it properly. And then the plain evidence of the video he did, well, that calls into question the officer's credibility. So I told the judge, and I promised the judge, when he watches the video, he's going to see the best one-legged stand test he's ever seen in his life. (laughs) And in his ruling, the judge said, Mr. Guzik, you promised it was going to be the best one-legged stand test I ever saw. And that is true, but that doesn't even go far enough. We're talking about one-legged stands among allegedly inebriated people, right? This is a perfect one-legged stand. (laughs) Perfect. Case is dismissed. So we, and my guy uh, likes music, so we literally moonwalked out of the courtroom like Michael Jackson. And there were high fives and there were uh, hugs. When I got home, my 11-year-old conscience compass Asked how it went, and I said, we won. Next question, but was he really guilty? (laughs) Stop me in my tracks. I said to him, the state has to prove he's guilty. And we live in a country where the government has to prove us guilty. So we have to exercise our muscles to put the state to the test. They have the burden, right? So it was kind of a complex answer, but it was also a check on me before I celebrate too much. You know, did I do society a favor? What I say to my clients on those times, you know, the end of the Jesus story with the adulteress and the he was without sin, throw the first stone. He then turns to her after the crowd goes away and he says, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. And I think a lot of people forget the second part of that story. Um, so I say that to my clients. I say, I just say, as a great teacher once said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And then the second thing I say is, now let's run like hell out of here. Yeah. yeah. What percent of the clients that you work with are friends and neighbors or people who are directly connected to you or one step removed from you? Almost all of them. Does that 
animate you to win? Does it make you work harder? Well, it helps. I mean, it helps from a personal perspective. This is a friend of a friend or a relative of a friend. Um, it also, you know, kind of a pragmatic thing. That is my advertising. So if I get a good result in the community, I'm going to get more calls in the community, right? I want to do well so the word spreads. Hey, call Goose if you got a problem. Goose don't lose. You know that, Dan. <laughs> so it sounds like just from the tone of what you're saying that, you know, you made a good call going into law and that you do enjoy it. But it can't be all sunshine and roses. What's the biggest grind of the gig and how do you grapple with that? I I can predict how a judge is going to rule on certain things, but I don't know for certain. So that uncertainty actually is a cause for great anxiety, especially the higher the stakes. Again, if somebody's going to go away and be incarcerated, and I don't know that we have a dead bang winner, that's a highly stressful situation. If somebody's at risk of losing their kids, oh my God, it has personally taken a toll on me in my life. You know, my hair's thinner and my stress level's much more than it ever used to be. Well, Goose, you're such a great storyteller. I have uh, really, I'm a better person for having the opportunity to listen to your stories both in and out of the classroom. And we all love stories. Can you be so kind as to tell me the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure? And if I may, can you start with a failure so that we can conclude with a triumph? Ooh, I like that. Thanks. (laughs) I did have a recent what I consider a failure. And I I struggle with it in many ways. I had a client who was charged with DUI and it was DUI for drugs. She came into my office with her parents. Um, She was a middle-aged woman. She denied there's no way she had no alcohol, no alcohol, no alcohol. Her parents were on her side. Yeah. She doesn't drink and et cetera. Well then after that initial, initial consultation, I go to court the first day and I get the discovery, all the evidence that the state has. And it's very clear that this isn't about alcohol. This is about drugs. The evidence plainly showed there was serious drug involvement. So I talked to her one-on-one. She did explain what was going on. I felt, and this was, this, these were serious drugs, highly addictive and highly harmful She had been in an accident. Luckily, nobody got hurt, including herself. But the parents seemed to have blinders on. And I wanted to tell the parents about it, but I have a sacred oath on confidentiality that, you know, can be waived. But at the initial consultation, enough did not come out that they knew. But I felt she was in serious trouble. And I wanted her parents to know. We had a couple of court dates. I did get the suspension dismissed, but did I do a favor for society. And in my case, did I do a favor for my client? I wanted the parents to know how much trouble she was in. So I, mom or dad would drive her down to the court hearings. I would say, sit close to the bench and just listen to what's going on. My client refused to give me the okay to disclose everything to them. Finally, we get the suspension done. I pled her guilty on the DUI. Um, There is a chance we could have won. But I decided, uh, and again, this might not be the, the right thing, but I was at peace with her getting a sentence so that she at least had to comply with some post-judgment stuff, go for drug counseling, and at least the parents would know there's some sort of issue. But before she could ever start any of that, I got 
a call that she had OD'd at her parents' house and had died. Mm. Uh, oh, sorry. That haunted me the second I got the call, and it'll probably haunt me the rest of my life. Um, I uh, th- That's a failure. If you ran it through the ethical considerations, no, we didn't fail. If you ran it through the legal, well, yeah, they had the goods on her. There, she was going to be found guilty. You did what you could, saving her from the suspension. Well, I don't know that I served society, and I know I did not serve her as well as she needed to be served. And maybe that that would have entailed me breaking uh, some of my ethical responsibilities. But maybe I should have done it, and that's something I'm going to grapple with all my life. Thank you. I'm desperately sorry to hear that you had to go through that. And I'm sure you did the best you could. And I know you will meditate on it and pray on it and come to terms with it. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, but hey, if you'd be willing, I'd still like to hear a story of a professional triumph. So, yeah, that's a um, much more fun topic for me. There've been a few. I, uh, obviously the donkey balls case. Um, <laughs> I, I had a kid who, um, was charged with theft because his car got towed. He was all of 19 years old. Then his, uh, girlfriend said, we'll get your car out. She drove the getaway vehicle. They blasted through the gate at four in the morning, broke his car out and he had a long record. So he was going to go to prison. And then, uh, the, the the complaining witness, the guy who ran the auto pound saw my green lantern ring and decided instead he dropped the charges, but the kid had to do a whole bunch of community service. And I said, well, would you consider taking him on at your place? And he did. Yeah. So instead of his 120 hours of community service, the kid ended up working there for several years and got on his feet. And, uh, the hard, the hardened, um, auto pound guy got softened a little bit by green lantern. The Green Lantern strikes again. The Green Lantern, the power of will. But I think my my most rewarding one was a family law case. A guy who had been living with his girlfriend for years and years. They had a five and a half year old daughter. And at one point, the, the relationship ruptured. Um, he asked her to leave. She said, fine, but you'll never see your daughter again. He said, uh, you can't stop me. She left took the daughter, had no contact with the daughter. The first attorney he went to see said, have you ever gotten a paternity test? And he had not. So he went and got a paternity test, found out he was not the dad after five and a half years of, of raising her. That is a shattering moment. And uh, that attorney said, you've been given a great gift, walk away. I think that attorney was thinking too much about money and not the other spheres that are present that make up our existence. He obviously put no time into the mental aspect of it, the spiritual aspect, the psychological aspect, uh, the emotional aspect, and instead just said, hey, she's not yours. Walk away and you don't have to pay child support. My guy was anguished over it all and eventually came to me and said, is there anything I can do to get back with my daughter? I said, is that what you want? He said, yes, I'm the only father she's ever had. My father was the only grandpa she ever had. So I, I fought and I told them, you know, what this means is the way the law works in Illinois. And this is very unfortunate, but you're either all dad or you're not dad at all. 
you can walk away without paying child support. If you walk back into this, you will more than likely be hit with all the child support and all the responsibilities and even college. And he thought about it and he said, that's what I want. So we went back in and fought and fought and fought and believe it or not, it was like pulling teeth. And the judge wanted to hammer my guy at first. I said, judge, do you know who the petitioner in this case is? And actually it was not long after nine one one. And I used the metaphor. I said, in on nine one one, you had thousands of people running for their lives, scared to death, running down staircases. And then you had a few hundred souls running up those stairs and into those buildings. And those were the heroes. And this guy is running back into that burning building. He is in a, in a time when so many dads look to get out of their responsibility. He wants it. He's got to have his full rights. And I was able to reinstate him legally father, but it meant an awful lot to me. And it meant even more to him. And every year at Christmas, I get another card from him and his daughter where she says, thank you for giving my dad back to me. And she grew up to be valedictorian of her high school. Ah. That's a win. No, you made me cry. Uh, me too. <laughs> All right. That is a win. That is a triumph, a complicated one and a triumph at that. So, Guz, I can't let you go without one more thing. I, I'd like to ask you to recommend a guest I should pursue. This could be either like someone you have in mind or just more generally a profession you want to learn more about. I got a guy that you need to talk to. Who is it? And he's going to be more entertaining than me. Impossible. But I think you know him. His name is James Fotopoulos. He ah. is an entrepreneur. He is a restaurateur with fascinating multivariate interests. But I heard on your initial podcast, you worked at a hot dog stand as your first job. And this guy did the same. And now he owns his own hot dog stand. And I think he'd be the kind of guy that you want to inject into this proletarian discussion. Jimmy Fatopoulos. Jimmy Fatopoulos. That is a great idea, Goose. Can you help me? Can you help me to fight to get Jimmy Fatopoulos on stage? I'll bring him to court if I have to. You will get your interview. <laughs> Goose, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It is such a pleasure to reconnect with you, to hear about your work. Uh, I miss you like a brother. I'm sorry this damn pandemic is keeping us from meeting eye to eye, but this has breathed some new life into me. I'm going back to teaching tomorrow and uh, I'm just going to have a little more of a pep in my step because I had a chance to talk to the goos on the Sunday night. So thank you so much for making the time for me. Thank you for remaining as enthusiastic as you always are and for telling me stories and for sharing this experience with me. Thank you so much, goose. All right. We'll see you. Bye. Bye. And there you have it, my friends, my buddy, my pal, my high school hero, the Goose. If you're in the Chicagoland area, keep an eye out for him. He's driving a Cadillac. License plate, the Goose. And when I was in high school, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. 30 years later, I think it's the coolest thing ever. All right, so subscribe. It helps me if you subscribe. Leave a comment, leave a review, and pretty please. With sugar on top. Come on already. Share studs with your people. I'll catch you on the next episode. 